and listen to this word of God. I'm reading from chapter 22 of the book of the Revelation, beginning with verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angels to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard them and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then said he unto me, See thou do it not. For I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book, worship God. And he said unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according to his work as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters, and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the waters of life freely. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And who hath ears to hear, let him hear this word of God. Well, we're considering the Christ of the Covenants 
And we are looking now at the first of those covenants, the covenant of creation. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you will help us to understand how you bound yourself to us in creation and how we ought to respond in light of that life and death bond. Help us, Heavenly Father, to appreciate the continuing significance of what you made when you first created the world. Help us also to appreciate the wonder of the new creation that you have made in Christ Jesus. For we ask in his name, amen. Born again, so what? It's tempting to approach that assertion, I've been born again, with that kind of response. So what? Everybody wants to be born again these days. But the question has to be asked, so what? What is the significance of your being born again? Just before the service this morning, a new friend walked into the church and was sharing a perplexing question. He said he had several friends who said they were born again. They had been baptized in the Spirit. And yet when he went to the bar, he found them there. And when he stopped with two, they continued to seven or eight or nine or whatever until they were no longer able to control themselves. How do you square that kind of activity with the assertion that you are born again and baptized of the Spirit, he says. Well, the Lord will take care of that in his time, they respond. Well, you begin to wonder and you begin to ask, what is it that God expects when a person affirms he has been born again? There is no better way to understand something of the ramifications and the radical significance of what it means to be born again, which is a way of saying you have been recreated, you have been made a new creature in Jesus Christ, than to go back to the beginning and to find out what God intended for man when he originally created him. If you want to understand what kind of outworking a new creature in Christ Jesus should manifest, then go back to the beginning and see what God intended when he originally created man. For the way to understand the redemption of man is to understand his original creation and God's intent in that original creation. Now in the covenant of creation, in that bond that God established with man when he created him, you can see a more general area of man's obligations to God, and then you can see a focal aspect of that covenant of creation. We looked last week at the first basic aspect of that more general dimension of God's relationship to man at creation, the Sabbath. We saw that God's word established as a very important dimension of the whole movement of human history and an important dimension of the repetitive cycles of man, the Sabbath principle. God consecrated, God blessed one day in seven, not for his sake, but for the creation's sake. And God sanctified and God made holy that day. And that therefore tells you how man recreated in Christ ought to respond to his creator. He ought to set aside one day in seven as a sacred holy day, even as God established that ordinance in creation. 
Now, there are two other major dimensions of God's creative activity that affect the kind of life that man ought to live and the kind of expectations that God has from man, not only in creation, but also in redemption. And the first of these is marriage. Marriage. Now, as we look at this matter of marriage as a creational ordinance, we're going to consider not only a word for you who are married, but also a word for you who are not married. Now, there are some who are not married by choice, and there are some that wish that they could choose that they were married. And the Word of God speaks to both of those areas. Now, with respect to this creational ordinance of marriage, notice, first of all, that it is a creational ordinance. It is a creational ordinance. It is an ordering of the universe that is built into the very structure of things just as much as the law of gravity is built into the structure of things. It is a creational ordinance. Marriage was not created as a matter of human convenience. Neither is there any suggestion whatsoever in the word of God that there might be a way of opening to alternative lifestyle. And you know what that implies. Now, there are several elements of the marriage relationship that ought to be noted as it is laid out in creation. If you can get your bearings straight from the creational structure of marriage, then a great deal of the problems in the modern understanding of marriage may be taken away. First of all, notice in the original creational ordering of marriage the wonder of interpersonal fusion the wonder of interpersonal fusion that is created by the marriage relationship. Look at the beginning of things as it is found in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. Genesis 2, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, Now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The two become one. Here is one case in which your mathematics fails. One plus one equals one in the marriage relationship. What a wonder is this amazing thing that two people, two independent personalities that are completely in the likeness and image of, of God themselves, beginning in a sense that they are independent creatures and capable of functioning independently of one another, then are joined in an amazing way that human beings cannot, under, cannot understand completely and cannot explain completely. But you know, you who are married, of the reality of that wondrous thing, the wonder of the interpersonal fusion that is created by the marriage relationship. Two people become one so that the two function as one, so that the one complements, not complements, but complements the other and rounds out, yes, indeed, rounds out and perfects the other. It is one of the great wonders of the marriage relationship. Now, some of you men are 
traveling men, and you know that it is not just at those rare or occasional circumstances in which you are bound together in the intimacies of the marriage relationship, but it is also in those circumstances in which you are separated from one another. You still are very much aware of that oneness that is created in the marriage relationship. It is one of the most amazing things that God has made. And the effort of man to deny that, to deny that oneness, is always bound to fail. Notice that Jesus, in his comments, that Jesus, in his comments on this original creational relationship, makes a little bit of a notation here. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it says, For this reason, that is because the woman originally was taken from the man, therefore a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they, they, I almost said they too, it says they shall become one flesh. That's what it says in Genesis. But if you look in the Gospels in Mark chapter 8, there Jesus does interpret what that they means. Where Jesus says, excuse me, in Mark chapter 10, where Jesus there says, they too shall be one flesh. They too shall be one flesh. Jesus is not adding something to the scripture at that point. He is simply bringing out that which was implicit from the creation of the world. That two and only two can be one flesh in the marriage relationship. Whenever a third party is introduced into the intimacies of the marriage relationship, then there is a violation of that unity that is established from the original creational orderings of things. So the first thing to notice about the creational structure of the marriage relationship is the wonder of interpersonal fusion as two and only two are made into one. Now a second thing to notice from the creational structure of the marriage relationship is the internal structuring of that relation the internal structuring of that relation. And that internal structuring is described in Genesis 2, verse 18. Look at Genesis 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. A helper suitable for him. Now that little phrase, a helper suitable for him, has, what, five or six half dozen words in the English language. In the original language, there are only two words. A helper corresponding to him. A helper corresponding to him. Two words. And in those two words, you find the perfection of the balance of the structure of the marriage relationship. 99 and 99 one hundredths percent of marriage relation problems would wash out pure if people could just grasp those two words and put them into action. A helper corresponding to him. Let's think of these two words and how they provide an internal structuring for the marriage relationship. First of all, this word helper. The wife is to be the helper to the husband. 
Paul confirms it in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9, where he there says that the man was not made for the woman, but that the woman was made for the man. There is a structuring here. There is, if you will, a priority here. The woman is made to be a helper for the man. And that is a basic structuring of the marriage relationship. That implies what Paul develops later in the New Testament, that the man is the head of the marriage relationship. Now, he is not to be a bloated head. He is not to be a hot head. He is to be a saving head, as a matter of fact, in relation to his wife. But nonetheless, he is to be a head. Now, more recently, that passage in Ephesians chapter 5 has been greatly abused when it is suggested that there, when the reference that Paul makes to a mutual submission, submission to one another in Christ, that that means the husband is to submit to the wife just as the wife is to submit to the husband. But as a matter of fact, in the framework of that teaching in Ephesians chapters 5 and 6, you have submission mutually to one another in accordance with the structurings that God has established in that passage. And in that context, the wife is to submit to the husband. The children are to submit to the parents, not the parents to the children. And those who are employers are to, to submit to their employees. The slaves are to submit to their masters and not the reverse. But it is in that ordering that the wonders and the perfections of the structuring of the marriage relationship are to be realized. She is made as a helper. But let's get the other side. Let's get the ba balance. She is to be a helper corresponding to him. That particular phrase in the original language is very striking because it suggests the idea of standing face to face to him, standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with him. Have you heard that phrase, someone standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with someone else? That is, they stand as complete and total equals in relationship to one another. The wife is no less in the likeness and in the image of God than is the husband. And it is as the wife realizes her full potential as a being made in the likeness and image of God just as much as her husband, that she is to be the helper that the husband needs. You remember the earlier description of the creation of the woman. God looked and there was nothing in creation that was adequate to be a mate corresponding to the man. So from the man... God made the woman in the likeness and the image of the man, bearing the same likeness of God in herself. Now you see in the marriage relationship, if the husband tries to make the woman anything less or lower than he in terms of her complete being, if, she, if he tries to suppress the woman in keeping her from realizing her total potential, mentally, socially, intellectually, and every other way, then he is destroying the very need that he has, which is to have someone to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with him, face-to-face -face with him, corresponding to him in every way. Now, it is a wonderful thing that God has made this marriage relationship. 
Who could have imagined the perfections of the ordering of things as God has established it? A helper which the man desperately needs corresponding to him in every way equal to him as a person made in the likeness and image of God fully capable of realizing all her potential as one in the likeness and image of God. Now at this point, a word for the singles. You notice the first part of Genesis 2.18, it is not good that man should be alone. Now that phrase must be balanced by the New Testament passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. What does 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1 say? It says, now for the matters that you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. Hey, will the true word of God please stand? On the one hand, you say, God's word says, it is not good that a man be alone. And on the other hand, you hear the word of God equally and also the word of God saying, it is good that a man not marry. How do we put these two together? Well, we put them together in the context of the movement of redemptive history, the movement of the purposes of God toward the full redemption of both man and woman in Jesus Christ. And we recognize, as Paul further describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that because of the present necessities, because of the present distresses, and also because of the special gift that God will give to some, both men and women, it is good that a man or a woman not marry, as well as being also good from the creational order of things, that, or it is not good, that a man not marry. So what is the situation? The situation is that in the context of the present distresses, in the context of the present order of things in which man has fallen into sin, there is a special ordering of God in which God, according to his own purpose and plan, calls and sets apart some not to be in the marriage relationship. And of course, you know in the ordering and the purpose of God, for some for a while to be married, and then for some for a while not to be married. And what you have to do in those circumstances is count on the grace of God, count on the gift of God, that it is his purpose and his plan that is being ordered for you, whether you are in the married or in the unmarried condition. Now, what is the impact of this original creational ordering for sexual aberrations that are so common in our modern society? First of all, let it be clear that polygamy contradicts the creational order of things. Whether that polygamy be simultaneous polygamy or consequential or sequential polygamy, it contradicts the order of things. Two, and only two, shall be one. Divorce contradicts the creational order and intent of God. Now, as you read the Word of God in the New Testament Scriptures, there do appear two reasons that do provide a justifiable divorce. According to the word of God, in the case of uncleanness or adultery, a, a divorce is appropriate. What has happened is that the party, the guilty party, has joined himself with another person 
and thereby nullified that original marriage relationship. And according to the word of God, the innocent party then is free. Also, according to the teaching of Paul in Corinthians, if an unbeliever should abandon his spouse and leave him so that there is no way of a reconciliation or bringing together, then Paul the Apostle says that under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, there is a legitimate freedom for divorce at that point and a freedom to marry again under those circumstances. But according to the situations that you and I face today most frequently, divorce contradicts the order of marriage. The two shall be one. They are joined together, and as Christ said, that which God has joined together, let not man put asunder. And it should, I trust, be most obvious to you that homosexuality contradicts the creational order that God established. God did not make another man and say, here is my help that I provide corresponding to you. No, he made a woman corresponding to the man, and he brought the woman to the man. Homosexuality violates the most basic ordering of creation, and according to the Apostle Paul, those who enter into that sin bring the judgment of God upon them for that particular sin. Not that there is no forgiveness, Not that there is no possibility of restoration and redemption, but so long as a person is walking in those circumstances, he is violating the most basic ordering that God has established in creation. So here is the second of the creational mandates. First, labor. Secondly, marriage. And in the redemptive circumstances of life, one of the great privileges that you have as one that is born again of the Spirit of God, that is a new creature in Christ Jesus, is to see the restoration of that broken order of things that came into the world because of sin. Even though great tensions may arise, as they always do arise in the marriage relationship, in Jesus Christ there can be the recreation of that perfect bond of union that God intended in creation. No greater blessing can be experienced by man or woman than the blessing of the marriage relationship established in Jesus Christ. One whole book of the Bible, the Song of Songs, was written to celebrate the greatest of human relationships that can be experienced, the union of a man and woman in Jesus Christ. Now let's go to the third of these creational ordinances, which is labor. Labor. Now, labor is given in the creation in relationship to the Sabbath principle. Labor is given in relationship to the Sabbath principle. That is, it is only in the context of six days of meaningful labor that you can experience the Sabbath relationship. Very often. Man is seen seeking more and more to cut down his responsibilities, to do less and less labor, whereas God's word says, six days shalt thou labor. It is a positive command laid upon man. Now, that doesn't mean you have to work six days at the factory. You can work five days in the factory, and if your house or your spouse is anything like mine, I'm sure there'll be at least one day's worth of labor around the house to do for that extra day. 
You can get the, you can fill in your quota of six days. Don't worry about that. That'll get done. But that is the principle and the ordering of, cre of creation. Six days shalt thou labor. And many of the great social ills that we face in our country and in the world today comes not just out of a failure for adequate job opportunities, but a failure of man to commit himself to six days of meaningful labor. This ordinance of creation is found in the cultural mandate when God said to man in the original creational structure, subdue the earth. Just as the two words, a helper, correspond to him, break open all sorts of implications for man's life today, so those two words, subdue the earth, have massive implications. Here you find justification, not necessarily budget-wise, that's something for you that are in government or somewhere else to determine, but the justification for the effort of man to reach out into, into space, to find out what is in the tail of Halley's Comet, and what we can learn about our world, our universe, from even those kinds of explorations, the justification of that is found in those original words, subdue the earth. Get down into your microscope. Get up into your telescope. Harness all of the world that God has made to the glory of man, or to the glory of God, and not to the glory of man. All labor is good. One of the most interesting insights in the Word of God to the beauty and value of all labor is seen in just a little side comment in the book of Chronicles concerning King Uzziah. Here is the mighty king of Israel, one of the great kings of the southern kingdom, a good man. And it has this little phrase. It says he had vineyards and he had trees and he studied all the little plants. For it says, for he loved the soil. Here's the great king. And he loves to get down in that black dirt and work his hands into it and marvel at the fact that you just stick a little seed in there and somehow maybe you talk to it a little bit as it's beginning to come up and wonder of wonders, look what happens. He loved the soil. God loves and has honored all kinds of work and we should not think of any work as beneath our dignity because God has established and sanctified work. That's interesting to see New Covenant legislation with respect to labor, and that is found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. Paul the Apostle says, For even while we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. According to the ordinance of God, he that does not work, let him not eat. Now, obviously, that puts a great responsibility on those who have the resources to provide work opportunities for people but it also provides a great responsibility for each and every one of us to search out and to find those places 
where we may labor to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Born again, so what? Well, you're born again, not just to get baptized and then forget it all. You're born again to subdue the earth. You're born again to labor with your hands, your mind, your body, and all that you have. You're born again in the marriage relationship or in the single relationship to use all your resources to the glory of God. So that is, these are the general aspects of the creational order of things as established in the creational covenant. Now finally, just one last point, and that has to do with that focal dimension of the creational covenant, that focal dimension And that was the test that was given to Adam as to whether he would eat or not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Very likely there was nothing about that particular tree that marked it off from any other tree in the garden. What was happening here? God was putting man to the test to see if he would obey God simply for the sake of obeying God that he would hear God's word and would recognize that he is not God but man and that his obligation is to bow and to break his will under the sovereignty of Almighty God. You can eat of all the trees, but of this tree you must not eat. That was the focal point of testing. And that is where man failed. Man's will rose up And he said, I will not have this man to rule over me. I will not have God to lord it over me. You've had that experience every now and then in your own life. The word of God comes and says this and you say, I will not. The word of God says, do not do this. And you say, I will do that. And you're simply reflecting that original violation of the creational covenant. And that's where ultimately our hope And our prospect of salvation must turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. For he was obedient. He was obedient even unto death. Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, succeeded. As in Adam all died, so all who are in Jesus Christ are made alive. As by the one man sin entered into the world and all were made sinners in him, so also in Jesus Christ all who are in him are made righteous. You can be the righteousness of God, not for the righteous acts that you perform, but for the righteousness of Jesus Christ as he wrestled with his own will to bring it into submission to the will of God. The scripture says... He learned obedience by the things which he suffered. It isn't that he moved from disobedience to obedience, but he moved to ever more intensive obedience. And he was obedient even unto death. You remember that ultra drama in the Garden of Gethsemane? And notice the progression that you see in the experience of the Lord Jesus. He says in his prayer, first of all, if it be possible... Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but not as I will, but as you will. Then he moved on and said, The cup which you have given me, shall I not drink it? And gradually, 
he brought himself to the point of complete, utter, and total submission to the will of God. Even as he looked into the gaping hole of hell, which anyone would recoil from, Jesus Christ committed himself to obedience, even to suffering the judgment of hell to save sinners. Where Adam failed, Jesus Christ succeeded. And therefore, you may have all the blessings of God's covenant, not only in this life, but in that which is to come. Let us pray. (coughs) Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the wonder of our creation, that we have been made in the likeness and image of the Son of God and remade in that likeness and image by our new birth. Help us now to see the wonder of Christ's perfect obedience and the wonder of his working obedience within us. Give to each one of us a sense of purpose, a plan, of direction of our lives, because we know we are made in your likeness and your image. For we ask in Christ the Savior's name, amen.